In this podcast, we discuss chronic illness, injury, medical procedures, bodily functions, mental health, trauma, grief, crime scenes, violence, and dead bodies. And we cuss. A lot. If any of these things concern you, don't worry, they concern us too. But we can't opt out. Discretion is advised. We're like experts and shit. <laughs> like I said the last time, we are professional podcasters. Professional podcasters. You know, if you watch somebody do something long enough, <laughs> this is what I'm telling myself because I've been watching nothing but like sugar working tutorials all week. Oh my gosh. In hopes of being able to make perfect little fondant people. The answer is no. Or your, your daughter's birthday party. <laughs> yeah. We'll see. We'll see if I can do it. You you can do it. <laughs> I have faith in you. Good, because I don't, so somebody should. <laughs> anyway, let's start the show. Welcome to the Invisibles podcast, where two spoonies dish some salt over true crime. That's how we do. I love it. We have a salt dish. It's big. Is it a salt dish, or is it like a salt trough barrel <laughs> salt truck <laughs> the answer is yes we talk about true crime cases that involve people with disabilities and chronic illnesses our main focus is on trying to bring visibility to things that otherwise would be overlooked or be a side note in a story and today we're talking about the case of brian daniels you should introduce yourself Right. I should. <laughs> My name's Chris. I'm Rebel. And uh, that's us. Brian Daniels, tell me all about this person. Yeah, my, my working title for this, for my notes, was Death of an Artist because he seems like a really cool guy from what I can tell. Nice. Yeah, so Brian Daniels was born in 1966 as the youngest of 10 children. Whoa, that's a lot of kids. <laughs> yeah, in a blended family. And I mean, my dad was one of 13, and he was born in 48. I think he's right. on like the tail end of the, of the kids that were born to the boomers. Sure. Or the he's one of the tail end of the boomer generation i guess is both of my parents are of four. Oh, really there's four siblings for my mom and my dad you know gen, gen x and and the millennials were were killing the baby industry well true probably it's as it should be we've got too many people however on this planet. have you seen the number of people that have gotten pregnant in 2020 it was it, it's quarantine they're home more they're no i know i'm not <laughs> i'm not disputing that what i'm saying is that i think that the millennials 
might be catching up. <laughs> I mean, maybe. And I'm just reminded of the Richard Pryor comedy special where he says people be fucking. <laughs> <laughs> it's not exactly how he put it, but I'm going to paraphrase. People be fucking. People be fucking. <laughs> um, anyway, so. <laughs> like a turducken. No? Br- Brian. <laughs> I hope not. Jesus Christ. <laughs> okay. Brian was very close to his mother, Lucille. And he seems like a really loving and artistic kid as he's growing up, you know, kind of a mama's boy, but he excelled in painting and poetry. So he was kind of an emotionally in touch kid. And by all accounts, he was truly brilliant. His sister Linda said later that he had an IQ over 145. Wow. Which is pretty high. Yeah. I don't, I don't know IQs. Well, I mean... It's not an accurate measure of intelligence or indeed type of intelligence. It's just, I guess it used to be just a measure that would determine whether or not you needed additional assistance. Or if you needed to get into Mensa. I mean, I guess. They've never offered me an application and I'm pretty goddamn smart. (laughs) Do they have to offer you I'm pretty sure, yeah. Okay. I'm pretty sure. It's like a it's a super secret club. Let's be honest. It's the Illuminati. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> You're not wrong. I don't think. I I personally think, I, and I could be wrong, and listeners will probably come for me. But um, I think clubs like Mensa are kind of elitist and greed. Truly intelligent people who aren't, you know, egotistical, know that doing that. No point in separating yourself out from the rest of humanity. Right. They kind of do that anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Your intelligence already does that. So what are you doing? You you don't want to have friends? Cool. <laughs> don't be among the peons. I can think of, a, of an example of one person that you know really well. Oh, no, 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 no. He's not a Mensa. He doesn't. He's not Mensa. No. He would never do Mensa. But. No, 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 no. But what I'm saying is he's not Mensa, but he. He doesn't have friends. This is true. He doesn't have friends. He sets himself apart by. Yeah. But that, like I said, that happens kind of naturally. Right. And you don't really need a club to do that. (laughs) Right. I guess that's how they find friends, right? They go, they meet up. What do they do at Mensa meetings? Do they just sit around no drinking idea. scotch and playing chess and, and I- settlers of Catan and, and trying to figure out ways to successfully cl- commit some kind of... Sure. Sure. <laughs> at, after knowing your ex-husband for as long as I've known you, mm. I would think that they would... Just all be in the same room, but be really awkward. I'm reminded of the club that Sherlock's brother, Mycroft, was in. Mm-hmm. That men's club. I don't know. I see them in a wood paneled room on leather sofas. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's gold. That's staying in. <laughs> I'm just putting that out there. I think that Mensa might be a little silly. But as I said, we're probably going to have... Point zero 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 one percent of our audience that's going to message us. That's probably half a person. 
to be honest, I... that will message us and tell us what Mensa is actually about. They've been in it. <laughs> Nobody in Mensa is listening to us. <laughs> Why would they? They have too much stuff in their brains. They're planning a heist, okay? But no offense to anyone who's listening who's in Mensa. <laughs> No offense. Yeah, so he was a really intelligent guy. He was passionate, intense, and, uh, you know, from my opinion, he seemed to be pretty private, but when he was put in situations that involved people, he was really charismatic. He took care of other people, and he was kind of seen as being generous and really good at conversation. Like, every single person that I saw an interview with said that um, he was just a fun guy to talk to. Because he knew a lot of stuff and he was pretty well versed and he was really passionate about the things that he loved. And one of the things that he really, really, really loved and like obsessed over was Egyptology. And from a very, very young age. And and he kind of pursued that. He was an art student, I believe, for a while. Um, and in adult life, he was described as basically being covered with Egyptian jewelry. And I'm like, goals? <laughs> Can I join? Right? <laughs> I want to be covered in Egyptian jewelry. No, I, I take that back. I like Egyptian, but I'm not super fond of gold. So I would probably be like, I want I want silver. Can I get silver or platinum maybe? Platinum yeah, doesn't tarnish. I'm not a fan of gold either. It's too yellow. All of the listeners who are into gold will now... Yell at us in the comments. They've they've turned it off. They don't care anymore. <laughs> They're over it. They're over it. As Brian grew up, it became pretty obvious that he had a mental health issue. He was diagnosed with schizophrenia. And from what I can tell, his illness caused him to hyperfixate on things and sort of piece together reality in a weird and scattered way. Sure. It's kind of complicated and... Keep in mind, I'm getting all of this information from secondary sources. I wasn't actually able to see his Facebook or any of his other social media that he had because those things have been since taken down. Right. But I did find, I found an article written by somebody um, in his hometown that talked about him. Because from what I can tell during the trial, there was a lot of people who were hypothesizing about how the crime happened or what would have caused it, etc. And somebody put out an article that was basically defending him as a person. So I did get to see at least a hint of kind of his social media. By all accounts, as an adult, he dealt in art and antiquities on eBay. He would buy and sell Egyptian goods under the name Belos Sanctor which came out of some of his philosophical ideas that evolved on his social media. And so it's kind of hard to piece together. On LinkedIn, he described himself as an author and teacher at Belos Sanctor. And on Facebook, he seemed to be befriending people who were dabbling in occultist ideologies, and he developed a kind of personal philosophy that was part Egyptian, part Satanist, part Wiccan, and, <laughs> quote, Wholly out of this world, which I feel is a bit ableist to say. Maybe that's not okay. Yeah. Yeah. It just seems that he was a little bit, he was piecing things together but to did, make something that fit him. Right. Did anyone talk about ableism 20 years ago? <laughs> no. Mm -mm. No. 
Yeah, and actually his murder was in 2013. It wasn't that long ago. Right. But this is an art. So this was an article that was written around that time. They weren't even talking about it back then, so I'm not surprised. Um, Right. He wrote about indecipherable rituals in obscure jargon, and he mixed languages together. And in many ways, I think that this is sort of a reflection of his mental illness, but I'm not sure about that. So can you speak to that? What? Sorry, I I blacked out for a minute. (laughs) It's okay. Um, what, What do you, what am I speaking to? He mixed jargon and languages and really pieced things together. And I was thinking that that might be a symptom of his mental illness. Okay, here we go. Do you want me to just tell you about the definition and then the symptoms? Yeah, yeah okay. that'll work. So, schizophrenia involves a range of problems with thinking, cognition, Behavior and emotions, signs and symptoms may vary, but usually involve delusions, hallucinations, or disorganized speech, and reflect an impaired ability to function. Symptoms may include delusions. These are false beliefs that are not based in reality. For example... Mm -hmm. You think that you're being harmed or harassed. Certain gestures or comments are directed at you. You have exceptional ability or fame. Mm -hmm. Another person is in love with you or a major catastrophe occurs. Delusions occur in most people with schizophrenia. It doesn't seem like he had too many delusions per se. Right. Uh, from what I can tell, but that is something that people tried to argue later on. So keep that in sure. mind, I guess, because as I tell the story of of uh, who killed him and how and what he argued, um, it'll make sense. Right. Okay. The second is hallucinations. These usually involve seeing or hearing things that don't exist. Yet for the person with schizophrenia, they have the full force and impact of a normal experience. Hallucinations can be in any of the senses, but hearing voices is the most common hallucination. Okay. And just a little aside, because I I looked at Cody Green, who's a schizophrenic, and before he got diagnosed, he experienced visual hallucinations where the person had no face. Oh, weird. And also... That would be discomforting. (laughs) Right? And also, people in his life looked faceless. Oh, wow. Yeah. Ooh. So... I... That's... That would be rough. (laughs) Yeah. So now, he still has visual hallucinations, but he's properly medicated. So... Mm. They're more (laughs) people-y. Wow, that's, I can't even imagine what that would be like. I mean, there's some people in my life I would definitely prefer not to see their face, but you know, <laughs> for the ones that, yeah, I mean, how would you, because you, you, I mean, let's be real, you can't see anyone's face. Oh. <laughs> yes, <laughs> the, that is the point. I was about to, yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. continue. 
Um, yeah, so I don't know if, if this piecing together of reality fits into his mental illness or if that was just something that he was doing. Well, I'm not done. Oh, okay. No, tell me more. Um, okay, so the next one is disorganized thinking. Okay. Speech. Disorganized thinking is referred to from disorganized speech. Effective communication can be impaired and answers to questions may be partially or completely unrelated. Rarely, speech may include putting together meaningless words that can't be understood, sometimes known as word salad. Right. So there's that. Right. And then there's extremely disorganized or abnormal motor behavior. This may show in a number of ways. From childlike silliness to unpredictable agitation, behavior isn't focused on a goal. So it's hard to do tasks. Behavior can include resistance to instructions, inappropriate or bizarre posture, a complete lack of response, or useless and excessive movement. Right. Okay. That's a pretty common um, trope, you know, in representations of schizophrenia, fictionally anyway. Right. People, you know, moving their hands around, saying things that don't make sense. Well, and another... um, thing that I learned and then I'll get to the final symptom is that schizophrenia means split mm. which was coined in 1910 by the person that discovered it question mark anyway I mean discovered I, well <laughs> diagnosed it named it that's the one I'm but because of that it's hard for people to differentiate between schizophrenia and dissociative identity disorder which was previously called multiple personality disorder which is just real confusing yeah and i think that as psychology and and that kind of thing evolves they do sort of differentiate things a little bit more every time they'll right create new subcategories and things like that in order to better define so that they can better treat right yeah 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 at least i think that's the goal yeah i could be wrong well i mean for example uh, and then i'll get to negative symptoms (laughs) um for example um i listened to inside schizophrenia it's a really great podcast if you want to learn more about schizophrenia and I just listened to uh, the evolution of treatment. And in the beginning, they were doing uh, lobotomies. And yeah, but they were doing lobotomies for pretty much anything. Well, yes, I was going to say that. Yeah, they they were doing lobotomies for anything. But they were so they were doing lobotomies. They were doing oh, so so many weird things they were doing like put hydrotherapy Mm -hmm. which for you and i is like a like a nice massage thing for no yeah no this was not that um for people with schizophrenia they were basically strapped into a tub Mm -hmm. to sit in either hot water like almost boiling water yeah hot water 
or cold water, depending on the symptoms. And I'm not entirely certain what the hell that was meant to uh, effectuate. Like, what were you trying to do with that? So the the hot water actually did help with insomnia. Oh. The cold water was to, I believe, like, shock you out of a psychotic episode, which makes so really no sense. Torture. It was, it was just torture. They, and I know that's... That's kind of when they started developing shock therapy, which does right. still get used today in certain circumstances. So interestingly enough, the the host of the podcast who has schizophrenia actually has done electrotherapy um, as an adult, a consenting adult, and it did really help her. Yeah. But the way that they did it previously was to give you no sedation Mm. so you were fully aware yeah and probably not consenting because you'd been institutionalized by some family member or something right exactly and i mean that was during the eugenics movement when that was at its height yeah so i know that people were not well and when my dad was in college he worked in a psych hospital. Oh, my, my stepdad was a counselor in a psych hospital. Interesting. So he mm-hmm. actually um, transported people to their electroshock treatments and mm-hmm. from. And he said in the 80s. Yeah, no, I had a friend. I had a friend who had um, very, very debilitating depression. Right. Um, to the point of literally not getting out of bed, even to go to the bathroom. Right. And um, she was institutionalized and given electroshock therapy, and it really worked for her. Um, and I, from what I can tell, they don't really know why it works. They just think it, like, resets stuff. Yeah. And it's evolved, right? Like, as mm. as we were discussing, it's evolved from, like... A very like it was kind of like the wild west yeah in so many ways like this pickaxe lobotomy was done very barbarically yeah i saw i saw a documentary on the guy that did the most lobotomies yeah i can't remember where i saw that but um it was on netflix i think or something like that and it was yeah it was about the doctor who traveled around giving lobotomies and so Interesting. Yeah. Um, they talked to a woman uh, from UCLA who um, was doing, I think, writing a book uh, maybe about that guy. And mm. just a weird aside is he took pictures of the people before yeah. the lobotomy and then he like went to their house yeah after and took a picture of them after yeah mhm for no medical reason <laughs> i mean that it could be that perhaps he was looking for differences in motor function or something like that you know like maybe yeah i'm giving him the benefit of the doubt but really i kind of feel like he was eh, a bit but psychotic like, like that yeah. guy was not okay <laughs> like this uh this doctor was like, it literally served no purpose. Yeah, maybe he was just um, 
I don't want to diagnose, but I think he might have been getting his kicks out of it, to be quite honest. I mean, just based on his his personality and the way he talked about stuff and right. I, in that in that documentary you get to see like many people who knew him and they all say he was kind of a braggart and things like that. Gosh, I wish I had seen that documentary. It's really good. I'll try and find the title okay. of it. I can't remember what it's called. Okay, so let's get back to Yes. Let's let's veer back. Um yeah, no. So so So, hold on. Cuz I have there are I more symptoms more, that are more symptoms. Okay. Um, and this is literally called negative symptoms. This refers to... Re- oh, like the others weren't already negative. Right? <laughs> cool. I know. I read that and I was like, I need to look at a different source. Yeah. And they all said the same thing. So, negative symptoms. This refers to reduced or lack of ability to function normally. For example, the person may neglect personal hygiene or appear to lack emotion, doesn't make Mm -hmm. eye contact, doesn't change facial expressions, or speaks in a monotone voice, I'm guessing. (laughs) What's wrong with that? Also, the person may... Shit, some of us just speak that way normally. What the fuck? (laughs) What the fuck? As someone with a brain injury... PTSD, like all these anxiety disorders, I like there's a question in my questionnaire prior to a psychiatrist or a psychologist appointment that says noticeable slow speech or fast speech. So it's real common yeah, to have speech differentiations in psychiatric conditions. Well, right. But I mean... There's a lot of people who speak in a monotone. Well, yeah, true. So why is that a negative symptom? I have no idea. (laughs) I would think hearing voices that tell you bad things would be a negative symptom. Because when your math teacher speaks in a monotone... Mm. um, My God, if that doesn't remind me of my math teacher. Mrs. Redman, I don't know if she's still teaching... I'm sure she's still alive, but that was a, uh, she was a lovely lady, helped me out a lot, but goddamn. Yeah, I don't remember the name of the teacher that uh, was a math teacher that spoke in a monotone, mm. but. It's every single one of them. Every single one of them is the answer. <laughs> I already struggled with math. Yeah. Due to having a stroke. Right. So it was a problem. Anyway, back on track. Okay. Also, the person may lose interest in everyday activities, socially withdraw, or lack the ability to experience pleasure. Symptoms can vary in type and severity over time with periods of worsening and remission of symptoms. Some symptom, hmm. some symptoms may always be pregnant. <laughs> Present. Pregnant. Huh? Have you ever seen that? Pregnant. <laughs> that YouTube video of the guy reading Yahoo questions about pregnancy and people have misspelled a word like so badly that he has to. Oh my God. <laughs> he pronounces every single s- syllable. It's so funny. 
Again, things I need you to send me ASAP. I will send it. It is so funny. It is so funny. <laughs> so anyway, those are the yeah, symptoms. So, so symptoms, symptoms can go into remission. So I don't know. It sounds to me like maybe Brian's thinking was a little scattered. Sure. Well, but, but if... I mean, that seems to be the only negative symptom that I can find anywhere referenced as proof of his illness. So if that's as bad as it got for him, then maybe it was, you know, under control for him. I don't know. Right. And the the thing about it is that they draw a lot of distinctions between people who have families that support them and people that don't. Right. It, you know... It helps when getting diagnosed. It helps when learning how to take medications, therapy, right? all of these different treatments. And I mean, it helps with things like uh, having a source of income and, and keeping from being homeless. Because I know that there's a huge, huge chunk of the schizophrenic community that ends up homeless. And it's because they can't hold down a job right. and they, the, they can't they can't maintain that ordered thinking. The disparity of, and I don't have that in my notes if you remember off the top of your head. No, but I can look it up. But it's like... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit the Google. Okay, hit the Google. You're not going to Bing it? I could Bing it, but... I'm so disappointed. I don't, I don't use Bing. <laughs> me neither man that's a hard word to spell what schizophrenia I keep um, I keep wanting to put a P in front of it mm. which is a problem wow it's bad okay so according to Google yes and the source is endhomelessness.org Yes. Uh, schizophrenia affects 1% of the U.S. population, but it's much more prevalent amongst homeless people. Estimates are wide-ranging, but some go as high as 20%. Yeah. That's ridiculous. I didn't, I didn't trust my memory on that one, but as you're reading it... 20%. 20% of the homeless population is schizophrenic. And... On top of that, probably not properly medicated. No, and how would they be? I mean, to get treatment, you have to have an address. Exactly. To get to get any kind of treatment, I know for like for like veterans, if they go homeless, the difficulty of getting their, uh, you know, uh, medical coverage and everything like that, their checks even because. Uh, from what I recall, the government didn't used to send um, support checks or disability checks to P.O. boxes. Am I wrong about that? I think that's still true, to be honest. I, I'm not 100% certain on that, but I'm pretty sure that's still true. I'm going to Google that. Okay. Okay. It says it'll let you... This is weird. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, if you don't have a permanent address, um, or if there's a problem with delivering to your area, <laughs> they're like, do direct deposit. Dude, what if you don't have a bank account? You know how you don't have a bank account? If you don't have an address. 
Right, exactly. Okay, no, they say they they say they will now deliver to post office boxes, but I seem to recall there being a time when they would not do that. Yeah. Well, and and even then post office boxes cost money. So well, that's what I was just going to say. Like I had a post office box and I got a good deal because uh I knew the people that owned the store. Right. It was pretty expensive. Yeah, it can be. And I mean, I just think it's it's clearly a bad thing. Like, clearly. Well, I mean, this is a whole topic that we could get into at a later date. But, you know, the number of obstacles that are put in front of people with physical and mental health issues is just astronomical. The amount of work that you have, I'm going to go off on a rant. The amount of work that you have to do to be able to receive services is bonkers. It's, it's bad. I cannot fathom a world where we have billionaires holding 50% of the wealth, but I am a disabled person making like, less than a thousand dollars a month relying on family to help me Mm -hmm. and it still takes me like a a full month to fill out paperwork that I have to do every two years yeah because I have to go over in order to still qualify for disability I have to go over yeah my entire medical history which is ever-evolving and your whole life, I have the same issue. Yeah, it's it's really stupid. And this notion that um, that you should be treated that way because you know uh, you're not contributing to society. That's right. that's a capitalist idea. The idea that people have to contribute. Yeah, absolutely, nobody has to contribute. And bro, you don't get a choice about living or or you know being born. Right. Exactly. Especially when people try to cut off abortion and things like that like nobody has a choice about being born well exactly and then when you're born like i was i was born with a complex heart disease so i was screwed right out the gate yeah exactly out the womb whatever you know i had a surgery within 24 hours of being on this planet yeah, and it it's pretty stupid that you should have to go over your medical history every fucking year. Right. And these these people who are like, "Well, I shouldn't have to pay for everyone's health care cuz I didn't do anything wrong." Bitch. First of all, m- neither did I. Well, and that's the thing. That's this puritanical way of thinking that goes back to religion, right? The fact that right. if you have an illness, you've done something wrong. The idea that that somebody has to have done something wrong for a person to be ill. Exactly. No, okay? Illness is not a consequence. Illness just is. Right. And to to top it all off, able-bodied people who have functioning brains know have figured out how to like game the system right yeah so there are people like i was in the process of 
applying for disability. Yeah. And I was denied. Now, you always get denied once. That's just what it is. So I was denied. Um, because a number in my heart score was too high and I should be able to make a thousand dollars a month doing a part-time job. No. Um, I worked with you literally. (laughs) Yes. The answer is no. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And meanwhile, like a friend of a friend who like injured his knee or something Mm -hmm. due to like stress on his joint I don't know whatever he instantly got disability oh you think that's bad I lost my vision in high school when I was 14 yeah and and it's because of my immune system attacking my eyes. Right. Now, nobody knew what was happening. Nobody knew why it was happening. We still don't know why it was happening. We think it's genetic, but um, that's it. So that happened to me while I was in high school before I could even get a job legally, even with parental consent. Right. Now, I have never been turned down for disability, ever. Mm-hmm. And I am on the exact boundary between... Uh, legal blindness and and you know not legally blind right my vision is bad enough to to declare me legally blind but because I'm kind of on that boundary Mm -hmm. and because of the type of vision that I do have I can still get around pretty well so every single time I have to do something for my medical care or my um, disability back when I was on disability um, I would every single time I would fear that I was going to be told, no, you don't you don't qualify for this every single time. Right. And yet I never was turned down. I never had to go in for a hearing. Yeah. I mean, my saving grace is that the judge in my case said. In writing, in my decision that I could not be turned down for mental health. My dog is going crazy. You woof. Yes, my little tiny, tiny dog. Tiny woof. Little deer puppy. Be quiet. <laughs> but the judge in my case said I could not be turned down for a mental illness because I had a psychiatric evaluation and right. I scared the evaluator. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> That's a Patreon story for you. Right. So shit's fucked up. Schizophrenic people are unfairly disadvantaged. Um, and it seems to me that the majority of them, if they don't have a support network, they are fucked um, for the most part. I mean, literally. Like, I mean, that's true of most disabled people in this fucking country. But right. in the case of schizophrenics, it seems disproportionately represented oh absolutely i mean when one percent of the population is schizophrenic and 20 percent of the homeless pop and that's just schizophrenia that doesn't account for any other mental illnesses or compound disabilities which is what we're about to get into because brian unfortunately ended up having several disabilities at once yeah 
he was lucky though because he had a support network by all accounts he had uh, a really tight-knit family and his mom really really took care of his his care his medical coverage everything she she was hands-on with that that's great he really seemed to have his mental health under control even though he kind of had that scattered way of thinking when he was talking on social media everybody who knew him who's been interviewed said um that he was you know on point and According to what I've seen, he had a 100% seller rating out of 594 sales on eBay. And wow. that's fucking impressive. That's nearly impossible. Let's just I know. Like, I've only... I don't know anyone. No, has... I've made like 10 sales on eBay and I and I have one person who gave me like a 4 point something. I don't even know. I have like a 4 point something. Yeah. Right. So 100% seller rating out of 594 sales. Uh, clearly, he had the ability to interface and interact with the world in an organized way. But I think that he was still quite isolated and lonely. Um, he sort of depended only on his family. He didn't really have any close outside friends. He had acquaintances and things like that, but he didn't have too many um, close friends. His sister said that it had a huge bearing on the facts surrounding his death because he was quite isolated uh, as a person. Right. And so, yeah. So let's talk about what led to Brian's death. Yeah, let's get into it. This is a true crime podcast. It's a true crime podcast. We've been talking for an hour. Let's get to it. On September 3rd, 2005, Brian's Warrensburg apartment caught fire and he was trapped inside of it i don't know why the fire was started and i don't know um what all took place within the apartment but i do know that the fire left him covered in third degree burns over two-thirds of his body shit one of his friends who visited him in the hospital later said that he had almost his entire body covered with bandages leaving only part of his face wow he spent 10 months in the hospital recovering. Yeah. So what do you know about burns and burn injuries? Burns. Let's talk about burns. Yeah. Give me a minute. I do know that Brian had significant scarring on his hands, um, which for an... And he had, he had third degree burns, right? Yeah. And yeah, his... He had significant scarring on his hands, which for an artist, I could imagine being completely devastating. Yeah. Because I was an artist as a kid, and I lost my vision at 14 after being an award-winning artist as a little kid. Right. And so I can only imagine what that would have done to him, because... If you're an isolated person, a lot of who you are and what you have to say goes into your art, if you're an artist. Exactly. And I feel like losing the ability to do that the way you're accustomed to is, that's harsh. And it's it's like insult to injury, right? Because it's... Yeah. It's just one more thing you have to deal with. I mean, it, I I lost my massage career before it really even started. Yeah. So, and I love that. Yeah. So, yeah, I I can relate. Okay, so let's talk about, let's uh, define third-degree burns. 
Mm-hmm. Third degree burns or full thickness burns. Mm-hmm. So the... Oh, wait. Hold on. Third degree burns. Sorry. I suck at note-taking. I'll teach you my note-taking technique. Sounds good. Did I mention that I am drinking an entire bottle of champagne that's just sitting here on my desk? No, you did not. It was half full. I found it just sitting here. I don't know when it got here, but it's here, so I'm drinking it. Because we don't waste alcohol. I had a smoothie. Mm. And some water. Oh my god. I want smoothie. I mean, make a smoothie. My... How do I... Hold on. Sorry. That's okay. The difference between all the different kinds of burns... Here's the thing that you you need to know. Is that third degree burns are called full thickness burns... Right. Because they don't just they don't just burn the skin, they burn everything, the muscle, right. the yeah. Okay. There's a there's a depth to it. They're characterized by like a white color. Mm. And so do you want me to just dive into like treatment? Yes, please. Okay. Because he spent 10 months in the hospital. So I want to know what the fuck was going on during that 10 months. So here's the deal. For treating full thickness burns, the dead skin will need to be removed and replaced with skin grafts. That's just to keep the wound from being open to the air and gross. Right. So skin grafts are painful because unless they use like donor skin, typically they find skin healthy skin from your own body. So right. not only are they repairing the skin with grafts but they're also using the rest of the skin that is on your body yeah and I do know a little bit about this because I am researching this for another project but I know that uh, donor skin grafts are temporary and that they are just there like a bandage almost so that your skin can what's you know left of your skin can scar behind the skin graft at least that's my understanding of it I could be wrong. Right. And I know that in the case of grafts taken from your own body, a lot of times they'll do things like inserting expansion bladders under the skin. Right. In healthy areas so that the skin will expand and stretch around the bladder. So there's this inflatable pouch under your skin. Right. And it stretches your skin out. And then they cut that skin out, take the bladder out, and then they do this thing where they cut... It's like when you're making a pie crust, even they roll this like right. shredder over the top of the skin so that it, it it turns into like this accordion. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It's like a mesh. And then they lay the mesh over mm-hmm. and then your body grabs it and it 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 grabs blood supply and it grafts on. Right. And we're not even it's just... we're not even talking about the musculature underneath. So the timing on this depends on the size and location of the burns. Hmm. Most surgeons remove the dead skin as soon as it is evident that the burn is full thickness and graft immediately. Right. The hand, well, this is for hands, but. Yeah, no, I want to know about the hands because of all the scarring he had on his hands. The hand is then splinted until the grafts are healed. Oh, my God. 
And then mobilization begins. Ideally, this is within two or three weeks after the injury. Small full thickness burns may be treated like a partial thickness burn, Mm -hmm. but will take longer to heal and will leave scarring. Hmm. So they start to move the hand right after, a couple weeks after they graft. Yes. And a burn that goes around the full circumference of the limb Mm -hmm. can sometimes constrict like a tourniquet. Yeah. In such cases, the constriction may need to be released. Right. A procedure known as an E-S-C-H-A-R- O-T-O-M-Y. Escherotomy? Escherotomy. And, of course, I didn't look up the definition of an escherotomy, but... Well, if it's an otomy, it's something getting cut off. Yeah. I don't know what an escher is. I'm, I'm going out on a limb here. Let's see if I'm right. This is a round of Chris Trivia. Remember I said that I could be in Mensa? Yes. No, I, 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 yes, I'm quick on the draw, but mostly it's about my memory. I do remember a lot. Yes. For random reasons, which makes me very fun in trivia games. So, is an escherotomy where they cut into the skin to help it open up? Let's see. It's a surgical procedure used to treat full thickness or third degree circumferential burns. In full thickness burns... Both the epidermis and the dermis are destroyed, along with sensory nerves in the dermis. Wow. The tough, leathery tissue remaining after a full-thickness burn has been termed Escher. Following a full-thickness burn, as the underlying tissues are rehydrated, they become constricted due to the Escher's loss of elasticity, leading to impaired circulation distal to the wound. An Escherotomy can be performed as a prophylactic measure, as well as to release pressure. Okay, tell us how it works. <laughs> Making an incision through the escher to expose the fatty tissue below. Due to the residual pressure, the incision will often widen substantially. Bitch, I nailed it. <laughs> yes. I would high five you, but we're not in the same room. Shit. <laughs> I knew I knew this. <laughs> But also, that sounds fucking awful. Why do I want to be right? No. You and I have had a lot of crazy (laughs) surgeries, right? But. If it's an ectomy or an otomy, it's bad. Right. Exactly. And I've had five sternotomies. So. Ah, Figure ah, that out. Full body. (laughs) However. I think that it would be more painful to have an escherotomy than a sternotomy. Mind you, I'm under. Well, and also they've lost the sensory nerves in the skin. Hopefully they're given like some level of anesthesia or something. God, I hope so. Because <laughs> that sounds fucking awful. In the hands. In the fucking hands and the arms. Ooh, no. Yeah. Ooh, no, 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 no. Well, and think about this, too. You know, because I focus my research on hands because that was what you told me to do. Well, yeah. But he had these burns over how much of his body? Two-thirds. So I would imagine that that's not just hands and arms. No, definitely not. 
Which means that's a lot. Yeah. Actually, I feel like 10 months in the hospital is pretty low. Pretty low. Yeah. Because if they're doing, so they're removing the dead skin. Mm-hmm. Surgically, I'm yeah guessing. Then they're taking skin, taking live skin from his body mm-hmm. and grafting it. Mm-hmm. Then he has to heal from those grafts. Yeah. Sometimes additional surgeries. Yeah. Additional grafting surgeries are required. Yeah, and things like bone grafting too if there's been a a segment of the body that needs to be repaired right yeah bone and cartilage grafts so that plus this otomy yeah and rehab yeah and physical therapy right like you're not even talking about physical and occupational therapy yeah you're not even talking about like pain management. No. Yeah. It's, it's, and also, I mean, nobody's talking about this, but like, we don't know what medications he was on for his schizophrenia and we don't know right. how significant damage to the skin or to the vital systems of the body might affect how that medication was getting into his system. Right. And how it was being uh, metabolized. Yeah. And without, without knowing the medications that he was on, it's kind of hard to. Yeah figure that out because the medications that they have today are probably different than what he was taking well yeah this was back in 2005 so we're talking 15 years yeah and that's the thing like the dsm-5 now categorizes schizophrenia as a uh, as a spectrum disorder right which means they used to categorize it into five categories Right. And now with the DSM-5, it's a spectrum disorder. So just like... And that seems to be the case with most... I think most conditions are being spectrumized, if that's a word. Which makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. It seems much more helpful, especially in Brian's case, because he didn't seem to be as negatively affected as some schizophrenic uh, people are. Right. Which, I mean, probably indicates that his medical therapies for schizophrenia were doing their job. Yeah, it, like I said, it sounds like he had it under control. I, I'm concerned that that may have been disrupted by this incident with the fire. But if he only spent 10 months in the hospital, I mean, maybe he did okay. Maybe it helped him out. And here's the thing to kind of note is that because if I'm remembering correctly from the basic medical information that you gave me his mother died prior to the fire or no no much later yeah oh okay so a big piece of schizophrenia is that sometimes due to disorganized thinking Mm -hmm. among other things that you struggle to remember to take your medication. Yeah. So at the time, so if at the time when he had these burns, his mother was alive and his primary caregiver, then most likely there's 
no disruption in medication. And because he's in the hospital, he's right getting all of the medications that he needs. But I mean, I would also imagine that there would be a pretty significant PTSD state. Oh, absolutely. I actually have some notes on that. Yeah. People diagnosed with schizophrenia, how do they cope with PTSD? Because I know, you know, there's the old trope of the like, um, schizophrenic soldier coming back from Nam, right. you know, who has PTSD. There's that old fictional archetype. Yeah. And I know it's all crap, or at least some of it's crap. So I want to know, like, how would that work? If you have disorganized thinking already, suffering from PTSD, my God, that would be... There used to be a diagnosis called schizophrenia with paranoid paranoid schizophrenia right right yeah and so ptsd in paranoid schizophrenics manifests with more paranoia right well that's generally the case with ptsd more more hypervigilance and more paranoia right so there's two things number one people with schizophrenia are more likely to get PTSD. Okay. As just a comorbidity. Right. Just because you're already suffering from disorganized thinking and possibly hallucinations and delusions. So you're already kind of uh, coping with a reality that is against you. And it's, it, it's sometimes hard to get a schizophrenia diagnosis because PTSD and schizophrenia look similar medically. Interesting. Yeah. So, hmm. Yeah, I have had complex PTSD for ever and I didn't know that. So So here's the thing. There's no way of knowing if he had PTSD prior to the burn, right? Mm -hmm. We have no way of knowing. So we don't know if he was also treated for PTSD in some way. Right. A lot of the medications that treat schizophrenia can be used in more extreme cases to treat PTSD. Interesting. Because some of the medications, haloperidol. I've taken that. Yeah. Because when I when I got out of surgery, my open heart surgery in 2017 and my 2018 heart transplant, I had post-operative delirium. Right. And so I, they put me on Halidol. So it's in the same vein, right? So if I had delirium just at face, yeah, right, they could possibly think that because it was my primary symptom or or one one of my primary symptoms that I had schizophrenia instead of PTSD. Now, so they look similar. Right. So like they would know based on my brain injury from my stroke 
and the trauma that I would have suffered that there's reasons why my brain does things like that. But I can see how, especially 15 years ago, it would be hard to differentiate. Yeah, and I mean, there's no telling how the effects of the fire, the, the, the PTSD of the fire exacerbated his schizophrenia. Right. Or we don't even know his schizophrenia could have been why he was stuck in the fire. We don't know, you know? Yeah. What I do know is that he won a court case. Oh. Yeah. So tell me about this court case. So while he was in recovery at the hospital, his mom filed a lawsuit with the apartment management company, the landlord, and the smoke detector company. Oh, wow. Because apparently the smoke detector didn't go off. And he he won. The three parties settled the lawsuit for $4.9 million. Oh, so now he has money. So now he has money, and it was an annuity, the plot uh, which basically thickens. means... He, he was given monthly allowances, right? Right, Because an annuity pays out over time. So it was an annuity that was supposed to pay out, you know, over time. I don't know how much he got per month, but because he um, forever would have difficulty grasping objects and have mobility issues, he would basically need lifelong care and assistance. So I assume that the number was that high to fund that particular care. Right. Well, and let's be honest, $4.6 million. 4.9. 4.9. 5, let's round up. $5 million million. is not a lot based on the amounts of hospitalizations and surgeries and therapies he might need. Yep. For example, I had open heart surgery in 2017, Mm -hmm. and my total was close to... Two million dollars. Yeah, when I had my eye surgeries, the total was a quarter of a million. I had my heart transplant, which included five months in the hospital, and that was four million dollars. See, that's the thing that I know that a lot of that is because of the the whole economic industry set up around medical care in this country, right? And and I mean, people might say, well, you know, Brian Daniels didn't have any lasting issues. He got fixed. He spent 10 months in the hospital and he got fixed. So he's not going to need anything anymore. So that's just gravy. And the answer to that is no, uh, because not only is he going to need somebody to stay with him, um, he's also going to need to fund his life for the rest of time because he can't work. Right. And then in addition to that, you have no idea how third degree scarring will occur over time. You're you're you could have surgeries later on that you need to get. You could have medical issues arise out of. Exactly. I mean, we have no idea how bad his smoke inhalation was, and I know smoke inhalation can cause permanent damage to the lungs. So exactly. he could need respiratory therapy later on. We don't know. Four point nine million dollars is not a lot. No, it's, it's not. a very small amount to take care of somebody who's been severely, severely compromised. And that's, it's it's a small amount. Yeah. What it did allow Brian to do is purchase a large home in Columbia, Missouri. Now, 
we're going to have to post pictures of this place because I looked it up. Yeah, yeah, on Zillow. Oh, man. So I will post pictures that are taken around the time that he lived in it so that you can kind of see what it looked like at the time. It's been renovated and it's pretty swanky. I mean, look, here's the thing. We live in California, just to be yeah, clear, yeah, yeah. No, everyone. Yeah, we no. live in California. No, this house we're, did not cost... We're paying thousands of dollars just for rent. Yeah, and the the house... Like, there's a two-bedroom house around the corner from me that's... It's a two-bedroom house. Yeah. And it is for sale for $800,000. Exactly. Yeah. But in Missouri, even today... Yeah. For example, my mom just bought a house in Alabama. Mm-hmm. She didn't pay millions of dollars. No. I don't know what she did pay, but I know it wasn't millions of dollars, and she has, like, a decent-sized house for one person. Well, let me tell you about this house. Please. Okay? And it did not cost him. It cost him, I think I looked it up, and it was, like, at the time, it was, like, four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars around like 2008 right now it's like six yeah this is a fucking impressive house sitting on more than half an acre of land uh it's almost six thousand square feet five bedrooms five bathrooms a chef's kitchen a two-car garage multiple screened-in porches an incredible freaking view and a partially finished basement which brian of course promptly began filling with egyptian antiquities Naturally. Because why wouldn't you? I mean, that's his whole brand, right? Yeah, I know. He was in love with Egyptology and, uh, you know, occultism and things like that. So, of course, he began buying things and putting them in. Now, it doesn't seem like he spent a prodigious amount of money on this stuff. Right. It was just he was buying and selling. Right. So it was just a, a thing that he, you know, he would get an artifact, he would hold it, he would sell it, whatever. His mom lived with him for another year uh, until she died in 2009. And by all accounts, this was absolutely devastating for him. I mean, it would be. She was his closest friend, his familial contact, his primary caregiver. And in his grief, he became even more isolated. He seldom left his house and his neighbors really didn't even know him that well. So he never really even said hello. Right. At this time, let's see, he, he he would do... So, I don't know if you want this now, but I have a little bit about grief and schizophrenia. Shoot it. Let's go. When you're grieving, a flood of neurochemicals and hormones dance around in your head. This source said dance around. I'm not going to argue. Hey, man, you got to dance. These chemicals, when the music's playing... Quote, there can be a disruption in hormones that results in specific symptoms such as disturbed sleep, loss of appetite, fatigue, and anxiety, says Dr. Phillips. And those can lead to other symptoms. Exactly. When those symptoms converge, your brain function takes a hit. So if you already have schizophrenia... Mm-hmm. And then you're hit with a loss of your mother, who was also 
probably your biggest supporter and your primary caregiver, that is gonna fuck you up. Yeah. And by all accounts, it really hit him hard. Right. One of his friends who'd known him since art school um, before the fire said that, quote, he was a very private person in his home, but when he did come out, he was very out, which I think is like kind of a perfect description from what I've read about him. Right. Like, I feel like I want to know this guy. Super passionate, artistic, really into the occult and spooky stuff, great at poetry. We would all get along. Let's be real. I live alone and I am very isolated a lot of the time. Now, a lot of that has to do with COVID. I understand that. But I've been isolated for almost three years because I had my heart transplant in 2018 and was told to be a hermit for two years. And when the two years was up... We were in the middle of a pandemic, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. But I have to do things in my house to make myself feel better about being so isolated. So my party is a little less exciting, but it's still a party. Well, you don't know enough about Egyptology is the problem because I can imagine sitting at dinner with this guy and just listening to him oh, pontificate endlessly. Absolutely. And I am here for it. I want to buy a ticket to that dinner. $10,000 a plate. No, maybe not that much. $10 a plate. <laughs> so in the, if you could have dinner with someone dead or alive, he would be your pick. He's he's on my list for sure because it sounds like he knew what he was talking about and and by all accounts... He was mesmerizing. Like, he sounds really cool. I get it. So I'm I'm down. Yeah. And I mean, the, the trouble is that because he needed constant help, he was kind of forced to rely on people. And herein begins the problems. Right. So I think that that's where we're going to end it for this week. Just because I think... It's a good place to stop. Yeah, we got a lot of foundational knowledge, uh, a lot of things about his background, and we, you know, really described some things. So next week we'll get into kind of the nitty gritty of what happened. I think it's nice to end on a high note of like discussing who he was. Exactly. As a it's good to, you know, we've been doing this podcast for a while, and I think the, the, commonality throughout is that we really want to give you those foundational elements to talk about who the people that we discuss are as people because I don't know if you feel this way but a lot of times people in the disabled community and the chronic illness community when something happens to them you just feel like they're they're boiled down to an illness or the functions that a caregiver serves and or their or their symptoms. symptoms exactly and so we really want to give you I, I we've done these longer episodes but we really want to give you like a well-rounded picture of who the people are that we're talking about I want to say that we did reach out to the people we could find in the family um I did speak briefly with um 
I explained that we were doing a podcast on Brian and I did discuss how we were going to be presenting it. And I didn't hear back from them after that point. Right. I did discover that some of the family members that we talk about in this episode have passed away. So it was a little bit of a difficulty trying to get a hold of somebody from the family who could really give us more perspective. Right. Um, so a lot of the information about him as a person was taken from interviews with his family members in newspaper articles and that kind of thing. So um, we we really try hard to get a good idea of who the person is. Right, exactly. And, you know, that's really something that's super important to us and something that we will continue to do moving forward. But until then, do you want to tell us where where we can be found on the interwebs. Oh god. Oh <laughs> shit. One of these days I'm going to I'm going to know this by heart, but you know, today is not that day. Today is not that day. I know I have it in a file somewhere. Hang on. Give me a sec. I'm working on it. No, no. no. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Okay. Podcast socials. Yes. yes that's, that's us. us. Okay. So if you want to reach out to us and suggest cases that we can talk about or just share your feelings with us regarding, um, you know, a particular illness or something you've been through that might interest us, you, you can reach out to us at the invisibles pod at gmail.com. That's our email address. Um, we can also be found on Twitter at invisibles pod one. Um, and, uh, we have an Instagram called the invisibles pod, and I believe we have a Facebook group as well, except I can't remember for the life of me how to access it. So <laughs> if you look up the invisibles podcast, it'll pop up. Uh, neither of us oh, can good. access okay. it at this point. Uh, we're, we'll get that figured out. Um, we also have a Patreon. It's not very active because we don't have any patrons but uh it's there and we don't have any extra content for it yet either um but we will be putting some together for the future when we have patrons we will make extra content yes exactly yeah we're working on a uh a piece about Billy Milligan. Billy Milligan, yeah. So one thing that I've been preparing for a Patreon series is going through the documentary, The 24 Faces of Billy Milligan. We want to do a side thing for Patreon where we discuss current cases that are a big news, but we discuss them a little differently yeah then most people discuss them but we'll we'll come up with something clever for that and put that on the patreon all right so thank you for listening next week we will have the conclusion with brian daniels and we will probably do something about pam hup in the next few weeks because the net oh yeah the, the film the peacock film is coming out Here's what I think we should do. Tell me. I want to put it on the Patreon, okay? We can put it on our lowest tier for now, but I want to do a two-part Pam Hup stravaganza. Hup stravaganza. Hup saganza? Yeah. Okay, so one episode is <laughs> us drunk history recapping 
the Pam Hub case. You'll be drunk. I'll be okay. History. And well, the the reason is because I think that if you haven't heard of this case and what happened within it, you might have been living under a rock. Probably. Possibly a really slimy one. Or you just, it's quite possible that you have been in a coma for five years and just woke up and discovered podcasts. So sure, uh, we're going to go over the case drunk history style. And then we're going to talk about our perspective on her. Let's just say there's a lot of ways that her case becomes intersects uh, adjacent. with yes intersects this with this podcast so we're gonna like get on our salt blocks and we're gonna talk about how salty we are about this case and this woman this person yes whom I resent greatly for a number of reasons we've already kind of pre-production rants and then the second episode will be us Yes, exactly. We're we're going to do the second episode of where we watch the film. Oh. And give our opinion on the film. <laughs> You're smart. That ought to be fun. Off jump. Have feelings just about the trailer. Oh, well. <laughs> I can't. Our preview for that episode should be us talking about that trailer. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It has everything. Yeah. I, I just listened to the podcast. Right. I've been watching the Dateline channel because I've been hoping that they run all of the Pam Hup episodes ahead of the movie coming out. They probably will. Right. Because it's on the same platform. So I've been having that on in the background while I've been editing podcasts and whatnot. And, and every ad break... I'm telling you, I watch YouTube every ad break. I watch. The... Somebody knows you like true crime. But I think, I don't think it's just me. No, no. They have spent a fortune. I can't wait to see it. I'm actually really excited for it. I think it's going to be, I think that it's going to be over the top, but in the ways that it absolutely should be to do the story justice. But also I kind of worry that it's going to go too far. And I worry that's going to make her seem, I don't know, cool. When in fact, she's just a piece of shit. Just based on the trailer. This is just based on the trailer that I've seen probably 20 times yeah. in the last, like, week. For no other reason than I've been watching copious amounts of Dateline trying to find her episodes. Right. I don't think that they are going to paint her in a good light at all. Good. She needs to rot in hell, as far as I'm concerned. Right. They make it pretty clear that... In the very beginning, she is like feeding them all of this uh, negative. Don't don't spoil it. Don't spoil it. Don't spoil it. No spoilers. I'm not spoiling it. I'm just saying they make it clear what she's doing. Okay, as a so they make it clear that she's a piece of shit, narcissist, horrible, ableist piece of crap. Yeah. Yes. Cool. Awesome. Sweet. Anyway, all right. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week. This has been fun. We'll be back next week. And if you want to sign up for our Patreon at the $3 tier, I. What's the name of that tier? It had something to do with salt. All of our tiers have something to do with salt. 
pinch of salt. It's the it's the three dollar tier. <laughs> you can be any amount of salty that you want. Um, if you sign up as our pinch of salt, which is I believe the lowest tier, it doesn't mean that you're any less salty than anyone else. It just means that your ability to pay three dollars a month is greater than your ability to pay another amount. Yes. Or you want to try us out. Well, yeah, you just, you sample the salt. But you can be as salty <laughs> as you want. I I have got a sugar-free channel. It is... What's um, the sugar-free channel? No, it's basically just where I talk shit constantly. But that's salty. Yeah. All of our content is sugar-free... Yes, exactly. Oh, because we're salty that bitches. That is a very excellent point. Fair, fair point. Thank you. Well made. I will uh, be silent from now on. I the will. only thing that has been sweet in this particular episode is the fondant <laughs> that you learned to create for your daughter's birthday party. <laughs> but I will not be using that in any of our podcasts because I will not be sugarcoating things. Exactly. Oh, sweet. See, that's what I'm saying. Personal antidote that you shared at the top of the episode was that you were learning sugar work and fondant. Yes. But that's personal. And it is the only sugar situation that's happening that's not podcast related we're not salty about our family that's great all right so sh should we uh end it here so we're out <laughs> we're peace done. out peace out peace out good night everyone bye bye <laughs>